Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Steph Cha. everyone. Thanks for coming. Um, I'm going to read a little bit of my book that's actually about 100 pages in. So just a little background. Um, the protagonist is the same as my first book. She is a Korean American, now PI apprentice, and she's working on a case um, in which there's a it's a Hollywood murder mystery. And um, in this scene, she is interviewing the widow of the deceased actor. Um, hold on one second. Really important stuff first. So I'm reading this redacted thing from like months ago. So if I mess up, then that is why, because I'm reading from something that looks like this. Okay. The most notable for her marriage to newly deceased A-list actor, Willow Hemingway was moderately famous in her own right. At, at 30, she had a long career behind her. She started out as a teen model, then acted in soaps, picking up minor spots on sitcoms and crime shows here and there. At 23, she landed a regular supporting role in a teen drama that was popular when I was in high school. That was the pinnacle of her acting career. When she was 29, she married Joe Tilly, who was 16 years her senior. As far as I could tell, she stopped acting after the wedding, but her prominent marriage saved her name from obscurity. <laughs> I can't figure out what I was trying to tell myself to do with this. Okay. <laughs> I rang the doorbell, and after a minute, I heard the muffled metal sound of a turning lock. The door opened just enough to let me know it could be pushed, not a crack of visibility for the photographers waiting outside. Willow Hemingway was waiting ten feet inside, watching me with a dull curiosity in her eyes. You're Jamie's friend, she said, her voice flat and raspy. I nodded and tried not to stare. So a little background, she's now representing the person who is the prime suspect in this murder. She was a beautiful woman, blonde of course, with the kind of wide blue eyes that occupied billboards across the world. I might have seen her face in a magazine when I was young and felt ugly and inadequate with my small, dun eyes, my dark, lank hair. At this moment, her looks were compromised, though not by much. Her skin was stretched and her eyes shot red with the residues of an angry cry. A black silk robe hung rumpled on her fragile frame. Come in, she said, and led me out of the foyer. 
The house was magnificent and overstated, far enough over the top to veer back toward tasteless. Every piece of wall displayed either some tapestry or painting or mounted pottery or a framed portrait of Joe or Willow. The number of these was astonishing. I followed her to a living room where she installed herself on an oversized couch draped in brocade. She indicated the other side with a panning motion and I sat down. Who are you supposed to be exactly, she said, the question delivered without rising intonation. You talked to Jamie, right? He said you were working for him and that I should see you to help him, but why? Jamie's the... I closed my, eyes and my mouth and started again. What have you been told about your husband's death, Ms. Hemingway? Just call me Willow, please. Any relation, by the way? To Papa? She floated a smile that was meant to be ambiguous. There's some relation, but it isn't clear where. So, what have you been told? Something about my great uncle. A bad marriage, maybe. Sorry, I said a little embarrassed, about the other thing. She sighed and pulled at a handful of her hair. Not a lot. Have they... Not a lot. Have they mentioned anything about foul play? They've danced around it. Maybe they think I killed him. They'd love that. She nodded toward the front of the house where reporters and paparazzi buzzed in squirmy discontent. They'd call me the Black Widow. I'd look amazing on trial. I didn't doubt it. So Jamie, yeah, so what's the deal? Why is he in trouble? Well, if Joe was murdered, it looks like Jamie's the favorite suspect. She rubbed one eye with a sharp knuckle and laughed. Jamie murdered Joe. I work for a private detective. Jamie hired me to find out what really happened. I watched her to see if she would pale or tremble. If I wanted to clear Jamie, I needed some alternate suspects, and she was a more likely candidate than the average chump on the street. She didn't flinch, though it occurred to me, almost reflexively, that she was an actress. Poor Jamie, she said. I'm sure he appreciates you seeing me, as do I, I said. It must be a tough time for you. I paused and tried to sound sincere, even though the feeling was there. I'm sorry for your loss. She nodded. It's been hard. Joe was an asshole, but he was still my husband. If someone really killed him, though, I'm sure he had a good reason. I wonder what he did this time. A cigarette appeared out of some fold in her robe, and she lit it up with a silver lighter. Did he have any enemies, I asked? Oh, ton, I'm sure. Any you know by name? She narrowed her eyes. I probably know several, but it's hard to know who likes him and who hates him, even among his friends. She used air quotes there and rolled her eyes. Comes with being famous, I guess. People hang around even if they wish you'd fall off a roof or fade away. Joe had lots of these friends. We both did. I still do, I guess. So many people have called or texted or written on my wall or whatever, and I'm sick of it. It's like, sure, maybe some of them mean well, but I don't even know most of these people. They're not concerned. They're curious. They want me to make them feel special. They're fame vultures. I nodded and listened as she complained about her fame. She wanted to me to know that she suffered, and there was a certain relish in her voice as she listed these woes. The party at the Roosevelt Thursday night, I asked. Were you there? Of course not. Joe didn't believe in inviting his wife to parties. She sighed heavily. Sometimes I wonder why he bothered to marry me. How did you meet? 
We worked together on hot air. She smirked. Have you seen it? No, sorry, I haven't. Terrible movie. Even I know that. Anyway, I played a sidekick. We got terrible reviews. People said we had no chemistry. She laughed bitterly, and I could, get her, and I could picture her reading online message boards and getting very angry. But we were great together off screen. Joe romanced me, really did his best to sweep me off my feet. I was so flattered I fell in love with him. We got married after four months. It's clear enough that the honeymoon didn't last, but I let her tell the rest of the story. He was wonderful those first months. I've read the tabloids. I know what people say about me, but I was so in love with him. I hadn't been in love like that since I was in high school. A film of tears formed over her dry red eyes. I'm sorry, I said. No, she sniffled and tilted her head to catch the one tear big enough to roll out, a wet bead that dispersed on a red fingernail. I'm glad we had that at least. I'll try to remember at least that. I nodded. The night he proposed, he had this party at his house with like 30 of his friends. We hadn't been dating that long, so I hadn't met a lot of them, and I was just starstruck. She cataloged the guest list, and I recognized most of the names. And they knew who I was, and it was just incredible. Then Joe opened this incredible champagne, and with everyone looking, he gave this incredible speech and got down on one knee. I didn't stand a chance. That sounds special, I said. Did you know it was coming? Not at all. I mean, it was stupid of me to yes, say yes, but you know, George Clooney was there. <laughs> I'll never forget that night, no matter what he did after. Joe got that right. I tried to picture a room filled with faces from movies, and I had to admit I couldn't claim immunity to the disorienting vapors of fame. Talking to Joe Tilly's widow about her A-list dream life injected me with some strange, heady sense of self-importance. I didn't like it. So what happened after that? We got married, and again, everyone was there. You can see my wedding photos if you look online. Some photog must have wedged himself in the bushes. We were trying to be discreet, you know? Anyway, after the honeymoon, we stayed in a castle in Bordeaux. After the honeymoon, things started going south. She frowned and her shoulders slumped in a crumbling way that said she'd had a drink or two since morning. There was this one night. We got in a fight because he flirted with the waitress while we were at dinner. He said I was being crazy, but he touched her hip. The far hip, so like, his arm had to go across her back. That in front of your new wife. That is crazy. Ugh, sorry, this wasn't the point. She dropped her head and raised her eyes, staring at a blown-up photograph of Joe hung up on the opposite wall. It was a good portrait, a close-up of his head and shoulders, taken when he was in his 20s. <laughs> <laughs> Next to it was a portrait of Willow. <laughs> and motionless, silent, side by side on this wall. Husband and wife were the same age and suspended in that false dimension. They made a gorgeous couple. So after this fight, we're just sitting in bed. We've both been crying and there's snot all over our covers. He's wearing this stupid fucking burgundy kimono with a dragon on it that I just... Maybe I'll burn that thing or put it in a shrine now that he's dead. He loved that thing and it was so terrible. Anyway, there's snot all over that, just shining. And I don't even remember who says it first, but we agree that we've made a huge mistake. 
She took a long, smiling drag on her cigarette and released smoke with a dry, punching laugh. And then we stay married because, I don't know, we were embarrassed. We made such a big deal out of everything. He proposed in front of George Clooney. And plus, I was Joe's third wife, and he'd already gotten plenty of grief about that. Talk about red flags, right? I sat quietly as she recounted her and Joe's tabloid life, her blue eyes probing mine whenever she dropped a full name. I was starting to get restless and at a logical pause in the interview, I commented neutrally on a painting on the wall. Oh that, it's nothing. If you wanna see some real art, Joe has like a Rodin. I started to demur politely and gathered up my purse. I mean, had, she interrupted, and her voice soft and dreamy. I guess it's all mine now. Okay, that's all I'm going to read. <laughs> Does anyone have any questions? I'm better at this part, I swear. <laughs> I should have planted somebody. <laughs> yeah, done. So how did, I think you made a good choice by the tone of this. I mean, it's the same character, but it's a really different different book, a different, kind of a different style. You really kind of started to hone in on, on a, you know, on your own personal style. Where the, have you, can you talk about what you went through to do that? Or what, was that conscious or yeah, I can definitely talk about that. He asked about kind of um, my personal style coming out a little more in this book. I think the thing is, with the first book, for those of you who read it, it was an amateur detective novel. And um, I had a crutch, which worked for me, and which was kind of the way that we sold the novel, which is that I had an amateur detective who was really into Raymond Chandler. I am really into Raymond Chandler. And this kind of worked as a what would Chandler do motif. And um, it was a relief to abandon that for the second book because I liked it, but it would have been tedious to continue. And so for this book, I was able to actually give her a job, which she didn't really have in the first book. And I was able to have her give her a reason to be in certain places at certain times. And that allowed me to kind of say what I wanted to say without worrying about why she was even there in the first place. So it was really freeing in that respect. And um, I think going forward, I, th I might try doing more of the established PI thing because it's really hard to explain why somebody would be in a place where they're in danger without that in place. And it's, um, it's very freeing to have an actual reason because then you can deal with the other things that happen. Yeah, um, so research, I'm really shitty at research actually. A lot of the time, oh actually my husband's best friend's new aunt who she discovered by this like incredible adoption story anyway. She, she used to be a police officer so I talked to her for a little bit 
And then I wanted to talk to a private investigator, and it's really hard to find a private investigator to talk to. I actually wasn't able to find one. Um, I mean, it's not like I tried that hard. I did a Facebook blast that was like, does anyone know a private investigator? And no one knew a private investigator. Um, so I decided, <laughs> And I mean, they're, they all are also probably constantly bombarded by authors, which is always my concern. When I like want to talk to a police officer, I'm like, am I going to find a police officer who like is willing to talk to authors? And in that case, is he also talking to every single other author in Los Angeles? So I mean, for the research part, most of my research is spot research, and it's very situational. So I have a I, I am very committed to representing places in Los Angeles in an authentic way. So I will go to places. Um, actually, for my first book, like Mike and I went together and like took a video of like a particular intersection in downtown LA at a particular time, and then went to Canners at like a particular time, stuffed our faces just to see what it would be like over there. Um, but yeah, so it's like if I have if I have a need for a knowledge of what a particular place looks like at a particular time, I will do that. Like I think if anyone wants to go to the Spearmint Rhino in Torrance in the next couple months <laughs> at like one o'clock on a weekday, like I probably need someone to go with me there. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean it's like that's the kind of research that I do. I mean I'm very, I, I admire authors who research deeply and I think I need to learn that skill. It's not one that I've acquired yet. Actually I'm reading Kim Fei's novel right now and it takes place in like 1920s Cambodia and Saigon and Shanghai and it's like very deeply researched. I haven't been able to do anything like that yet and I it, it's a thing. I'm, I'm, I'm also currently reviewing a book on de current present-day Detroit written by a South African author who just clearly spent a lot of time there and talked to a lot of people who live there and I just I haven't gotten there yet. I, I'm not paid enough to do that yet. <laughs> Yeah, so City of Los Angeles is a character in my fiction. Um, that's going to be a constant no matter what I write, whether or not it's detective fiction. I think that um, strong sense of place is important to any I think I think um, city as character has a particular reputation within crime fiction, but there's no reason that has to be. I think uh, any fiction benefits from having a strong place of setting, a strong sense of setting. Um, and yeah, and so this book deals with Hollywood and violence against women of color and kind of the without giving too much away. That's mainly what it's about. Um, and I, I position everybody in specific places and I do a lot of the like same getting to places within LA, going to different parts of it and just and kind of exploring what that means. Um, and I think I'll always do that. I think uh, my whatever I do in my career I'll always want to write about LA and particularly Korean Americans in LA. I don't think that's really going to change. How you got into history as a genre you want to write, and also um, what 
So how I got into mystery is that I took a class in my freshman year of college called American Detective Fiction, and it was awesome. We read, <laughs> I don't know, we read Hammett and Chandler, we read Poe, we read, um, we read Rear Window, and then we actually watched some of these movies, and it was just an awesome class, and I remember thinking, I, Chandler was my favorite, and actually, um, I've been talking to Ed Lynn, where, I saw him earlier. Anyway, I've been talking to Ed Lynn about who's better, Hammett or Chandler, and I, I, I prefer Chandler, and part of that is because he has a particular heart, um, but also he's an L.A. author. Um, but I always thought that all of these guys were incredibly deficient in describing anything that involved people who were not white and male. And since I am neither of those things, I wanted to write detective fiction that talked about what it's like to be not white and not male. Um, and I think I will always do that because detective fiction is, detective fiction in particular, I don't know if I'll do it forever, but it's, um, it's a very misogynist genre. It has some tropes that are really disgusting and need to be dealt with. And I, I, I have a lot of fun dealing with those things. Um, as far as what I'm working on next, I'm working on a third Juniper Song novel that's about the, um, that's about s pregnancy surrogacy and the Armenian genocide. Those are the two broad themes. And I'm working on that pretty much whenever I'm not doing something else, which is all the time. Um, and then after that, I might do another standalone crime-ish thing. But oh, and I have a literary novel that's been that hasn't changed at all in like two years. So one day, maybe. Uh, I'm curious about what it's like with, uh, to write the same character for two and now three novels and the third. Do you is it sort of do do you feel like you're just sort of getting to know the character more and you're more comfortable with it, or is there any kind of feeling of constraint like you already mm. defined this about her and you? So, um, about writing the same character across several books, whether it becomes a constraint or if it becomes a comfortable thing. I think a little bit of both. I actually feel more constrained by my side characters because I, I think I haven't really figured out what it means to write a series. I haven't really figured out how you abandon the plot of the previous novel. Like, all this crazy shit happens to this person. And, like, all the people around her. And, like, you're supposed to pick up and be like, oh, yeah, so, like, there's a new murder today. Like, it just doesn't really make sense to me. And so I'm, I'm having trouble thinking about what it would be like to write this character beyond a third book. Um, but... It is comfortable in the sense that I do I do know this character like I'm very I'm very comfortable with her inner monologue. I kind of know how she'll react to things at this point. Like I know her almost as well as I know my dog. Like she I kind of get how you put her in a situation and she'll react in a certain way. And that's nice. And I think she's a good character. I mean, I like her. The danger, obviously, for if I want to do another Korean-American sleuth is that um, readers will know the difference because sometimes there can be two Korean-American women and they can be different from each other. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like, that's difficult. Um, but, yeah, so those are kind of my challenges with Juniper Song. But I, I like her. I'd like to stick with her, but, you know, we'll see what else happens. Are you going to do a follow-up to your ice cream articles? <laughs>
Oh, my ice cream article. So, um, for those of you who don't know me, like, at all, <laughs> I write, like, random food shit for the LA Times. It's, like, really random. But I did an ice cream roundup of, like, my 12 favorite ice cream places in LA. And I did, like, a... But I did another companion piece about like five wacky flavors in LA. I did that, by the way, when we were in Chicago and we came back from dinner and I was drunk and I did it in like 30 minutes. <laughs> and you know, it paid $75, so like probably commensurate, but um, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not doing a follow up to that. I am doing a scouting report of a pepping soup place. That's like my next thing for them. And I'm working on a Searton roundup. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone else? How do you Oh, how do I pick the portions of LA that I focus on? That's a good question. Um, because there is so much LA, right? Um, so in the first book, I have a song Living in Park La Brea. And the reason for that is because my friend Esther, <laughs> who's here, lived in Park La Brea. And like, I grew up in the valley, so that seemed like the happening part. I, keeping in mind that I was 22 when I started Follow Her Home, and like, I had never heard of Los Feliz, or like, you know, I just like, never went anywhere that wasn't the valley in Koreatown, and like, places where my friends lived. And my friend lived in Park La Brea. So I was like, okay, this is cool. Like, the Grove is here. Um, <laughs> and so I ended up writing her around there. And I went to some, like, lawyer's house party that was also around there. So I was like, okay, that can be, like, another place here. And then there was a place called the Marlowe. So I was like, okay, that can be the third place. Um, <laughs> in, my, in, in this one, in Beware, Beware, I put her in Echo Park because it's a little closer to where I live. Um, and also, I had a friend who is living at this apartment that looked and that was advertised as looking over the Echo Park Lake, and the Echo Park Lake was just closed, <laughs> and they didn't disclose that in the in the Craigslist. But she figured it out, um, and so I thought this was just really funny. So I was like, "Oh, I can put her there." And then while I was writing it, the of course the Echo Park Lake opened again, but I incorporated that too. Um, so it's all, I mean, a lot of this stuff is half planned, half like, oh, what's going on now? So, I, I mean, I think of like things, I, I, oh, today I started a scene that takes place in Century City, because I haven't done Century City yet, and I think it would be fun to write like 200 words about how shitty Century City is. <laughs> So it's a lot of that. <laughs> My husband works there. He complains about the commute every day. He wants us to move. <laughs> Anyone else? Okay, if no one else has any questions, um, we still have a bunch of salami <laughs> and like some wine and beer. And I didn't actually eat a dinner, so I'm going to be eating that. Um, and then I think I'm going to sign for a little bit, and after we'll probably go across the street to public house because they allow dogs. And uh, if, if, um, if you haven't petted Duke yet, he's here. He's really great. 
And he's really, really soft right now. So <laughs> thank you all for coming. <laughs> You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.